good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we enter into the means of making disciples, as outlined by Jesus to the apostles, and by extension, to the church today. What we will see is that there is a clear categorical strategy for God's mission to the nations that will require our obedience in the subjects of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Thanks for joining us today as we look in depth in this first category of orthodoxy found condensed in Jesus' commission to baptize in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was a couple years ago that I got a phone call from some friends inviting me over to a church conference in Pennsylvania. And knowing that many times the pressures of uh, pastoring require that I have to work these trips in between the dates of availability, I went online and purchased my tickets way in advance so that I would make sure I had plenty of time to work out all those details. And then the day of my departure came, I got all my bags packed, Emily and the kids drove me down to Green Bay only to find out I had ordered tickets on the wrong date and the wrong airport. There was no matter of arguing with that attendant. There was no, no amount of fussing that was going to change the fact that she kept saying, Ryan, we don't have a plane leaving from here. What a disappointment. Right? I, I, I had done all this preparation. I had done all this planning. I thought I had been in the right place. I thought that I was where I should be when, in fact... It turns out, right when I needed it, I didn't have any of those things correct. We, we read a verse already out of the New Testament. I have it here again. Jesus asks his disciples, who, who do people say that I am? There's a, there's a lot of options there. A lot of folks were saying a lot of different things about who they thought Jesus was. Some said John the Baptist. Well, they killed him, so how is this John the Baptist? So others says Elijah. Elijah's been dead a long time. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. A lot of imagination going on here to define who they thought Jesus is. But then Jesus turns the question just slightly and brings it right to here in Segola today. For he asks his disciples, what about you? I'm not so interested in what others are saying. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, meh, okay. Any of those will work. Is that what he says? Just whatever you think is fine. Don't worry about it. Let's eat some pizza. Is that what Jesus said? I, I wonder how often we give thought to the centrality of that question. Who do you say that I am? And the significance of making sure, like Peter, that by God's leading, we get the right answer. In fact, there are many churches today, unfortunately, that are going to teach that you can think in a pluralistic version of who Jesus is. They have failed at answering the question as how critical it is to know the biblical Jesus. In fact, there are even some who will ask, do you really need Jesus to be saved? Which Jesus? This morning, as we are going to look again 
into Jesus' commission to his disciples. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to read through 19 and now at the very end of 19, recognizing that Jesus has a particular strategy for making disciples. And for our study this morning, it is going to be centering on this theme of correct thinking. Jesus is not going to establish his church, his people, with this willy-nilly foresight of being able to say, whoever we think Jesus is. Instead, Jesus is going to draw us like a laser beam into a very limited, correct understanding of who God is. And this to be, this to be seen for our study this morning as a strategy of how we, as well as the apostles, were to make disciples. With that in mind, let me read for us Matthew 28, starting in verse 19. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We're going to begin in our study here by just highlighting a few important observations, uh, primarily as we've come to this point studying this third or uh, second participle, baptizing. Uh, the, The first thing that I want you to see is that Jesus is not giving a formula for a ritual. Rather, he is giving he is giving us categorical means for making disciples. Now, if that sounds only slightly confusing, give me a moment just to explain what I mean by that. Um, There is, and rightly so, uh, the words spoken by those who are performing baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is there not? But some people believe that that carries with it some kind of ritualistic formula that validates baptism. When in fact, this is not what Jesus intended his apostles to understand. Jesus is offering these last two participles of baptizing and teaching as giving those who are listening and us today the means by which we are to carry out the primary verb. Which, for a little bit of review, does anyone remember what the main verb is in verse 19? Make, what? Make disciples. That's that's what we're to do. And how are we to go about doing that? Jesus tells us. By baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And by teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. That's how you make disciples. And so for these two thoughts, these categories, I want to offer them to you this morning under these traditional terms. They are called orthodoxy, which is right thinking, and then orthopraxy, which is right behavior. These are the two essentials that are given to the church. It is the responsibility of the church to be teaching that which is true and avoiding that which is false. It is the responsibility of the church to then teach what is in in accordance with this doctrine, with right belief which we would understand as orthopraxy or right behavior. 
If you're uh, just needing to make sure you're tying these together, you can find those two participles reflected right here. Orthodoxy means baptizing how? In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Orthopraxy or right behavior means teaching what? Them to obey everything that Jesus taught. Both of these showing up. Um, I want you to see that this is not something that is unique to Matthew. So I'm color coding them right here. I want you to see, and there's no shortage of this. I only picked a handful of how this is something that's taught throughout the New Testament. So a few verses, Romans 10, 9. I want to see if you can find out which one is the right belief and then where is the right behavior. What is orthodoxy and what is orthopraxy? Paul says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Which of these has to do with thinking? Which of these has to do with belief? Did you find it? It's right there. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And then which of these has to do with an action? Which of these has to do with something you do? Declare with your mouth. There they both are. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Romans 16. This is Paul at the end of his letter talking about his own desire. He says, Jesus is now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all the nations might... Orthodoxy and... Orthopraxy. There it is again. I also wonder if you were able to see he snuck in the Great Commission here too. Do you see that? All nations... This is a repetition of what we're studying right now. These two responsibilities given to the church, and that's how you make disciples of all nations. A couple more. Watch over your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Which one of these is belief? And then which one is orthopraxy, what you do? You see them right there? So your life, how you live, your doctrine, what you believe. One more, Titus 3. This is a trustworthy saying. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everybody. Did you catch the belief? Another name for faith is trusting. Those who have trusted in God. That's orthodoxy. What God? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then what's the outcome of that? Orthopraxy. That you be careful to devote yourself to doing what is good. So I want to uh, begin with this as an important part one. Next Sunday, we're going to cover the teaching participle, that third and final participle in in verse 20. But for this morning, we're going to focus on the the, um, uh, second one in this text, but baptizing. Um, I want to begin by letting you know that baptism, um, and the, the word baptismo in Greek, means to immerse. Uh, that's what it means. It means to submerge. It means to be completely enveloped in. Um, it would be like if you were at a Super Bowl game and you had some chips, and you took those chips, and you had some ranch dip. And you took your chip and you baptized it. <laughs> that's, that's literally what the word means. By the way, that's the illustration my professor gave me in seminary, so I'm sharing that with you. That's what the word itself means. Now, when it comes to these two categories, 
Uh, there's some just secondary ones that I want us to make sure that we hold to as we move forward. The first is that the church, therefore, is essential in making disciples. The church is essential for making disciples. Now, one clarification, I don't mean our church, and I don't mean a church. I mean the church. Everybody understand that distinction? Um, you, you can be a disciple outside of this local assembly. We're going we're gonna to mess it up from time to time. There's not one single place that you have to go. Instead, it is the society of those who embody the kingdom of God on earth. What do we call those folks? We call them the church. And it's going to require the whole church to make a disciple. There's not any one of us that has the full expression of the gifts of the Spirit such that we can finish the task from beginning to end on our own. We need one another. Furthermore, if you think with me upon these two categories... Right? Don't, let, don't let me lose you here because otherwise what we're going to end up with is some form of formulaic ritual with baptism thinking that all we need to do is say the magic words in the name of the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit, and that's it. Have you ever known churches like that where that's all the further they go in making a disciple? We need to be careful that we understand it's not a magic formula. Instead, this is a category of orthodoxy. It's all the right teaching about who this God is that Jesus condenses by saying in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's going to require the whole church. In fact, there's no other institution that does that. Do you know of any other institution that baptizes? When you got your job, did they, did they baptize you at your job before, before you got to work there? No. Nowhere else. Only the church baptizes in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Additionally, do you know any other institution that teaches you to obey everything that Jesus taught? Is the government doing that? Public school. They taking care of that for us? No. It's only the church. Now think of some of the other characteristics that we enjoy. Uh, Fellowship, right? Are there other institutions that practice fellowship? Absolutely. How about prayer? Yeah, even other religions that practice prayer. Right? If we think through the, the development of a community, are there other institutions that develop a community? Absolutely. But there is only one that practices orthodoxy and orthopraxy according to baptizing and teaching. Everybody with me on this? Which, which means for you and I in our understanding, Jesus is laying the foundational groundwork to say the church is essential in making disciples. Second, right belief leads to right living. There's a reason why Jesus begins with baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And secondarily adds for the means of making disciples, then teaching them to obey. You, You understand if you don't have an identity in Christ, you lack the capacity to obey. The Apostle Paul will say that those who are led by the flesh or the sin nature, here's his words, cannot please God. I mean, you could try, but you will fail. It is only by your rebirth, that is only symbolized by a water baptism, by the way. The the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the only source of power that you and I have strength to obey, which means we have to begin, not with teaching, we have to begin with right thinking. We have to begin with right doctrine. 
And if we do that correctly, you'll find this to be true. Right belief leads to right living. Let me show you some examples of this from the New Testament. Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. There's our orthodoxy. Paul is summing up everything he said in the previous 12 chapters. In view of everything I've just taught you. By the way, what do you think comes after orthodoxy? It's a funny sounding word, isn't it? Can, you guys with me today? You're all kind of orthodoxy. I don't want to say it right. <laughs> all together, what follows orthodoxy? Very good. And here it is. This is what he says. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. You will mess this part up if you haven't got that one first correct. You, you'll, you may think you're right. You may think you've purchased the right plane ticket. But you will end up at the wrong airport. So right thinking starts and then leads to right living. Another example is Ephesians 1. As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. You've already received right teaching. You've already received right doctrine. You've already received right belief. And so now what do you do? What follows orthodoxy? Orthodoxy. We're getting a little better. There it is. See it? Live your life worthy of that calling. Colossians 2. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, what follows orthodoxy? Orthodoxy. Yeah, I'm doing my best to get you guys to follow. (laughs) There it is. Do Do you see? Right thinking about God leads to right living. Two really important conclusions that will come from this. They're not in your notes, but the first is, how important is right teaching then? How many times do we then read in the New Testament the warnings against false teachers? Because if you start getting wrong thinking, guess what will follow? Wrong living. The second being that if you do not have right thinking, Or if you recognize that in your life right now, there's some wrong living. Ooh, I'm getting personal yet with you guys. Any wrong living going on? No one's honest today in church. (laughs) If there is, it may be an indication that the source of your wrong living comes from where? Wrong thinking. You guys with me on this? This is how you make a disciple. Like if you wanted to look it up in the cookbook, how do I make? How do we bake disciples here? Where's the recipe? Jesus, what's the recipe for disciple making? Here you go. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy. That's it. That's the whole thing. And so for our time this morning, we're going to focus in on orthodoxy. Look with me in the Bible. He says in verse nineteen, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So. If the church is God's vessel for making disciples, right? If this is a responsibility of the church, a few conclusions. Number one, baptism is the lasting sign of initiation for disciples. I'm speaking here specifically of water baptism. As you're writing that down, I want to just give a little bit of a warning. So this is my footnote to this message. Um, uh, Don't walk out on me. Uh, this is a controversial subject. In fact, there is no greater controversial subject in the family of God than baptism. 
everybody disagrees about baptism. And so if anything you hear this morning may seem like it causes some questions, take good notes, write it down, come see me afterwards, because I'd love to talk with you about them. Um, You'll find that of the questions that have to be answered when it comes to baptism, uh, it begins with, well, who can get baptized? It's a question of candidacy. Then we have the question that churches divide over. Even if they agree on the who, they divide on the when. How old do you need to be to get baptized? Then they'll divide on the mode. What's the right mode of baptism? And if you can't get along with that, we'll divide once again. Who can, for, who can perform the baptism? Can it be anybody? Can it, does it have to be someone who is ordained? Do you have to call me reverend to be able to practice baptism? And then we'll have the purpose of baptism. This brings up the issue of sacramentalism. Or some people will divide over what's the result of baptism. There are some churches that believe in what's called a redemptive baptism. You get my point? Everybody thinks differently on baptism. This, thankfully, is one of the things that we all agree on for the most part. Now, do you suppose that I have biblical thoughts on all those other questions? Yes. You can bring those to Bible study on a Wednesday and we'll, we'll dig into them. Uh, what I want to make sure that we simply acknowledge as we begin uh, di- diving further into this is that we walk carefully. This is my caution to you. Do not draw a line of conviction somewhere where God's word does not draw that line. It's okay to think differently from other brothers and sisters, other brothers and sisters on this, so long as it doesn't lead you to division. We want to be very careful to hold in common unity those things which are clear on us. And so we begin here. In fact, let me just give you one verse to support that baptism is the lasting sign of initiation. That's maybe the key word here. You guys know what initiation means? This is how how you're seen as part of the visible church. And that here, just one verse, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Paul says there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, when you were called one Lord, one faith, and what? Only one baptism. Christ is not divided. There's not multiple churches, even though we have different signs out by the road. There's just one bride of Christ. Amen? All right. Because of that. There is only one baptism. So this baptism being an initiation for disciples, disciples into what? Into the visible local church family and the universal church family. Now this is going to have a little bit of a logistical issue for when and how we practice baptism. Essentially, this means there's no such thing as a drive-by baptism. You guys know what I mean by that? Right? There, there's no such thing as a shotgun baptism. I don't know. Is those the right terms for this? You get, you get the point, right? Baptism is not meant to be something that's celebrated solo. That's called a bath. <laughs> <laughs> baptism is something that's meant to be celebrated in community. Because this is showing this welcoming, initiation, identifying as being I'm with you. I'm part of you. And all of us celebrating baptism to reciprocate that identity. You are with us. You are part of us. We are together in this. Um, In the New Testament, we're going to find that when we see the word baptism used, this is one place where a, a lot of doctrines divide over this. The thing that they miss is so often it's used as a shorthand to simply say joining the church. That they say they got baptized. And in that little bitty phrase, 
the writers of the New Testament were understanding what we mean by that is they're now welcomed into the visible local family and the universal family of God or the global family of God. One example of this in Acts chapter 2. Those who accepted his message, this is Peter's sermon, those who accepted his message, those who accepted his message, what, what orthodoxy, what, what ortho is that? Is that orthodoxy or orthopraxy? To accept a message. It's orthodoxy. Right? They're, they're, they're believing Paul. And so what happens? They get baptized. They join the number of the apostles. They join the number of the disciples. They are now part of the church. About 3,000 were added to their number in that day. Everybody with me on this one? Baptism, it's a lasting sign of initiation for disciples into the visible local church family and the universal church family. Maybe just one last word on that before we go on to the second one. It doesn't mean you're saved. You can come and sit among the church. And just because you park here does not mean that you are secured in your relationship with God. There have been many. In fact, this was an issue in the early church. The Apostle John writes to the church that many have gone out from us. They've left us. And it means they were never really part of us. But you can't tell that, he says, until you saw them go. For it is in their going proves that they were never really part of the family. And so you can't be a true Christian by coming to church any more than you can be a vehicle by sitting in your garage. <laughs> baptism will not save you. But what baptism represents can save you. Everybody good on that one so far? If you, again, if you have, I'm looking, don't get up and leave. <laughs> if you have questions, let's talk about them. All right. Secondly, again, baptism means what's the chip in the dip? Boom. Right? It means immersion. That's what the word means. And so I want to change just the, ver- the word here to get closer to the category Jesus is talking about. Second conclusion means immersion in the triune God must by necessity define the church. It must define who we are. We are those who confess faith in the one true God who is understood in three persons. Do you know that when, we re- when you read this, it doesn't say names. Did you catch that in verse 19? Baptizing them in the... Is name plural or singular here? Just one, one name for God. Only one God. There's not three gods. And so you and I have to understand that is the characteristic of the true God. That's orthodoxy. That is right thinking. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. However... It's always fun when I give you howevers in the middle of my sermon. However, that's not ever demonstrated in the New Testament. A little surprising. If this was supposed to be the formula, don't you suppose, as Luke records the expansion of the church through the book of Acts, what would we see at every baptism? Don't you suppose we would see them baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Don't you suppose every church that Paul would write to would have testimonies of people getting baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Not once do we see that evidence. Let me just show you some examples of this. So Acts chapter 2, Peter replied, Repent to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 8, when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They'd simply been baptized 
in the name of the Lord Jesus. Chapter 10, we have another one. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. One more in 19. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. What's going on? Did they not listen? Jesus, Jesus said, baptize them how? And what do we see? Hmm. Here's my point in our observation on this. What this means is it is not a formula. It is not a formula. Now, every baptism that I will ever do will, will be in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. In fact, to be baptized into the name of Jesus means to be baptized the way Jesus said to be baptized, which is in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But it does not end there. I need to remind you that this is not a formula. Instead, what you and I need to make a disciple is to immerse them in the teaching of this God, to immerse them in the understanding of the triune God. Here's a fun question for you. How long do you suppose that takes to get immersed? That's a good answer. Yeah, this is my point in trying to draw this out and show you this contrast of how the New Testament seems slightly different on this. Is because we have to be careful not to make the mistake that we think making a disciple is something you can only do when you hold them under the water for just an extra second to say what you got to say. And then you come up. As if it ended there. It takes your whole life to continue to be immersed in the fragrance of this teaching. That's what we need. Every little dirty, dark corner of your life that's involved in sin will be cleansed with orthodoxy. You have to change your thinking. And as you change your thinking, what will happen? Right thinking leads to right living. That's right. And so this takes the full scope of a lifetime, which is why I want to use the definition of the word baptism and not just the transliteration of baptismo. Baptism means to be immersed. And that's exactly what I think Jesus is getting at. I think he also means water baptism. There's literally an hour more that I want to say just on water baptism, but greater than that, the strategy here of orthodoxy is meant and intended for the church to continually spread this teaching, spread this teaching, the triune God. It defines who you are. One illustration that I wanted to add here is... um, Getting into a, like if you're on a, this never happened to anybody here, but if, pretend with me, you're on an airplane, pilot says, we're going down, but we have parachutes, right? We got parachutes. And so you get into the parachute. Does that save you? What do you mean? I'm wearing a parachute. I have put it on. Is that enough? Can the parachute save you? Absolutely. Absolutely. But you got to get out of that plane that's going down. And you got to faith to pull and trust it, right? So kind of in the same way, I felt like this illustration might track, right? That there's some people who think, I'm wearing the baptism, right? I'm wearing the parachute. But there's no actual faith beyond that. And so it's not just a formula. It's something that must happen all along. In fact, we already practiced it this morning I don't know if you caught this. This is a key part of defining who the church was, the Apostles' Creed. 
Do you know what creed means? It means believe. Credo is just the word believe. I believe. Do you, do you see the categories here? What do you believe in? God, the Father Almighty. What else do you believe in? In Jesus Christ, what else do you believe in? The Holy Spirit. Do you know that for the earliest Christians, this became a teaching required of candidates before baptism? They, they needed to make sure that they were being baptized, not just by a formula in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, but in the full teaching of this triune God. You need to know the God that you believe in. I'm sharing with you today that this is going to take time. This is our task as the church. For it is very possible for someone to be baptized with water and to fail at being immersed. You guys get what I mean by that? All right. All right, lastly, therefore, we must take seriously our identity in baptism and our doctrine as Trinitarian. Identity in baptism. I'm a Christian. I, I, I have... I've demonstrated that publicly. No, no private solo shotgun baptisms, right? I've, I've done that in the presence of the community. I belong to Christ. And I will prove that that is true in the transformation of my life for I will stay in this church as a member and a subset of the larger global family of God, all of which, baptize, all of which baptism is symbolizing initiation And then I will take very seriously understanding that it's not enough for me to just have a service on a Sunday morning, but I need a full immersion of my whole life in understanding right thinking, right thinking, right thinking, because I'm going to continue to live wrong here and I need to think right here. And that begins with the Trinitarian understanding of who God is. So what can you and I, what can we do with this to obey? And I just want to add one more time that if we get this wrong, if we get this wrong, that's like answering the question when Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And getting the answer wrong. That's like buying a plane ticket you thought was going to get you where you wanted to go and showing up and they're like, there's no plane here. You've got nowhere to go. We have to make sure that we take it seriously. So for you and I to take it seriously, this is what you got to do. Everybody ready? This is the do part of the sermon or the praxi even before next week. I know you're super excited you came today to catch that. Here we go. Number one, you must root your identity in God the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I tried to think of a better word than root, like source your identity, anchor your identity. I was like, they get it, Ryan. Stop overthinking that. You guys get it? The the foundation of who you identify yourself to be must be in the triune God. It cannot be in your promotion at work, your family lineage, your citizenship in America. It cannot be anything else. You have all of those things. You have other characteristics of who you are. They cannot be the anchor, the root, or the source. If you're going to take this seriously, then you must root your identity in this triune God. I don't want to show you how this plays out in the Bible. First, you say, I am a child of God because I'm adopted by the Father. That means you belong to a new family. Jesus can't do that. The Spirit can't do that. Fathers do that. And so your identity, notice it starts with an I am. What are you? I am a child of God. How? Because I'm adopted by the Father. Secondly, I am redeemed by Jesus. Which Jesus? Who Jesus? How Jesus? Uh, Because Jesus, the God-man, is a suitable substitute for my sin as a man. 
It's an identity statement. I am redeemed. The father doesn't die on the cross. The father's blood was not spilt for you. It was the son who died on the cross. It was the son's blood. It was the son who was made human like you. And then thirdly, I am born again by the spirit because he has sealed and regenerated me as a new creature, as a new creation. The father doesn't seal or regenerate. The son doesn't seal or regenerate. The spirit seals. And regenerate is a fancy word that means make alive. You have been born again by the spirit of God. And so you're new. You're a new creation belonging to a new family as redeemed. Everybody see this? This is what I'm talking about by the identity as the triune God. Secondly, saturate your soul with this God. And so my question for you would be, how immersed are you? <laughs> Isn't that a funny question to ask those who have been baptized? Well, that was a long time ago. I don't, I don't remember. I don't even know if I was immersed. I don't care about that. Hopefully that was the right starting point, but that's not where you need to be now. How immersed are you right now? Think about what we mean by immersion, surrounding your life, every aspect of your life. I wonder if I asked you, uh, uh, how, how immersed are you in the Green Bay Packers? Well, I, I follow the Packers. Oh, do you? Who's the quarterback? I don't know. Ever been to a game? I ain't never been to a game. I'm pretty sure then you're not immersed in the Packers. As if you went to my grandma's house, because if you go to my grandma's house, you'd walk in and you'd see a cheesehead hat with Green Bay coffee mugs with a picture of my grandpa hugging Bart Starr on the, on the table. She's wearing Reggie White's jersey and it has the 1997 Super Bowl championship tape, uh, book uh, uh, laying there on the coffee table. She's got the game on and she's hushing you because you're too loud. She's trying to hear Larry McCarron. That's what... Is she immersed? Yes. Apply that to Jesus. Is there enough evidence in your life to convict you of being a Christian? How immersed are you? If we were to look on your coffee table, what would we find? If we were to look on the pictures of your wall, what would we find? What jersey? How, you, you get the illustration of what I'm trying to describe here, right? L- listen, church, doesn't end with baptism. It starts with baptism. You need to continue to saturate your life with understanding the triune God. And then lastly, I want to encourage you this morning, you need to demonstrate your baptism as a participant member of God's family. You're, you're, you're fooling yourself if you think, oh, I was baptized, done, that's enough. If you thought that way, you're, you're on the hook now because you can't think that way anymore. You and I need to learn that what it means to become part of a body is I have to demonstrate this baptism. And I know that there are still many out here who have not been baptized. And so it starts there. It starts with getting baptized. That's a demonstration of my union with the church, God's family. There's no other institution that's going to baptize you. It's only this one. And water baptism is the beginning. It's the start, part one of a series that will continue in next Sunday of understanding the relationship of making disciples between orthodoxy, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then how that plays out in right living and right teaching. Will you pray with me this morning?